Well, Pastor McLean is uh, somebody that I've known for a little while anyway, um, and uh, he has become a friend of mine, and um, there are lots of things that I remember from Pastor McLean, and one of the first, and I don't know if you would remember this or not, but we were coming back um, from, I believe it was the Barry Youth Conference, and we all stop at this one uh, en route right there off of the 400, and uh, we were all in line at McDonald's getting something to eat, and uh, a voice came from behind me and said, how are you guys doing? And both Beth and I turned around, and it was Pastor McLean. We said, well, we're doing well. How are you? And we started talking a little bit, and he said, I want to buy your meal for you. And um, I was just like, oh, okay, well, thank you very much. And I was just kind of dumbfounded by that. And that was um, just one of those times where I think Beth and I just needed that. And I don't know if you would know that or remember that or anything like that. But uh, that's just, I think, characteristic of him and his heart. And he just wants to give to people. And um, I've always enjoyed his preaching. Um, I don't think in all the years that I've been around, which is not a ton, um, that I've heard a message that I went, well, that wasn't very good from Pastor McLean. He's always got something spectacular. And uh, I'm just so excited to have him here for this weekend. And uh, so, Pastor McLean, would you come? Let's welcome him as he comes this, this evening. Thanks, sir. Thank you. What a way to put a guy under pressure. <laughs> wow. I, uh, I do remember that incident. And uh, what I remember most is that I, when I made that offer, I never expected the total between the two of them would come to $60. But <clears throat> that's the way it was. <laughs> As I remember it. Now, you know, old people in their memory, you never know. I am honored and delighted to be invited to be here for homecoming. It actually feels like homecoming for me. Do you know that? Do you realize, maybe some of you don't know this, but my first foray into Canada was in 1979, and I came up here in the early part of the year. I just returned from the country of Iran, and my good friend from Bible college days was uh, Mike Elstock. And my wife and I said, hey, let's go up and visit the Elstocks and let's go see Canada at the same time. So we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, my in-law's place, and we came up. And uh, wow, I think the first place I ever preached in Canada was Bible Baptist Church. We were meet, you, were meet, you were meeting at that point, or the church was meeting at that point, in a gymnasium, in a public school. And I'll never forget the setting up for the service, and Brother Elstock was so precise. He had uh, pieces of tape on the, uh, on the floor. He measured it. He went along and straightened every chair, made sure everything was absolutely precise, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. I remember singing and, and loving the church and loving the fellowship, and then uh, I also preached. Uh, I don't know if there was a place intervening, but as I recall, you moved from that into a house and uh, renovated the garage. And I remember going there and preaching there, and they, had a, they hosted a pastor's fellowship there, and so I got to preach there and, and be a part of that. And then, of course, I believe from there, they came over and, and bought this building uh, next door, and I got to preach there, and now you're here, and I've gotten to preach here, so I feel like I'm at home, and a lot of faces here. I've seen you and known you for a long time, and of course, Levi, uh, God uh, gave us the privilege of having Levi growing up in our church, and so I feel like I'm home again. And I'm glad to be here. I trust that the Lord will use me to be a blessing to you. I want you to start tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. I was thinking as I drove down about the number of churches that I've been in since I was born. 
And I can't recall that I know them all, but I came up with about 10 churches that I've been a part of. Church has been a part of my life. Um, I remember Dr. Charles Keene saying, you can never love the church too much until you love her as much as Jesus does. And uh, I hope you love the church. And it's my goal, if God will help me, to try to stimulate your thinking and challenge you th your thinking from a Bible perspective about the local church. And I'm confident that I'm preaching to the choir for the most part, because when I walked in and I greeted you and you walked in, I can sense that this is a church uh, that I'd want to be a part of and would love to be a part of. And I can sense that you already know a lot of the things that I'm going to share with you, but perhaps God will give us some fresh uh, insight. Uh, but anyway, I thought about those 10 churches and, and uh, I've been in one of them for 40 years. <laughs> so we're celebrating our 40th anniversary um, this coming December. And uh, we started the church on December 16th, 1979. And so I'm 65, so the 25 years before, there was split with nine different churches, different places. It was never, we never left because of a church split. There was never any problem. Uh, every church that I can remember, I have a fond memory of, and I can remember the singing, I can remember the preaching, and, and I hope that you love the church. I hope that your life revolves around the church, and I hope that somehow I can help to enhance that tonight and uh, during the course of the weekend. Now, you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have a picture being given to us uh, of uh, marriage and some instruction given to the partners in marriage. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be with holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Verse number 32, we're introduced to a thought that what we're learning is a mystery. A mystery is not something that uh, it can't be figured out. It's something that uh, maybe you haven't thought of before or has not been revealed before. It's always been true, but it's not been seen perhaps before. And Paul said to the Ephesians, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking to you and showing you a great mystery concerning Christ and the church. Go back with me now to a book in the Old Testament that we're not very accustomed to turning to, the book of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. Uh, 
I believe, as do most Bible students, that the Song of Solomon is a book written to portray marriage. And, uh, and it is a book that gives us the right view of marriage and the right picture of marriage. And so it is a, it is a song, it's one of 1,005 songs that King Solomon wrote in his lifetime. But it's a song of love. And it's a song about a relationship between him as a king and a Shulamite girl. But I believe also that the intent of the Holy Spirit was that the, as we've learned in Ephesians chapter 5, that this picture of marriage would picture the relationship between Christ and his church. You'll remember after his resurrection that the Lord Jesus said to the disciples, or the scripture says in Luke chapter 24, that he opened their eyes so that they could see the things written of him in the law and the writings, and the writings are Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the books of poetry, the things concerning him in the law and the, and the writings and the prophets. And so we know, according to Jesus' words, that all the scripture, the Old Testament, was about him. And he's found all throughout it. So I want to try, with God's help, to paint a picture for you tonight and challenge you about your love for and your appreciation of the local church. I'm starting in um, chapter 3, Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Verse number 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem." Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. The question is, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness? And the question is quickly answered. It's King Solomon. Now, you wouldn't expect to find King Solomon in the wilderness, but he is in the wilderness. And he's coming up out of the wilderness. Now go with me to chapter 8. Should this uh, mic be moved a little bit one way or the other? I'm hearing a little bit of puff every now and then. It's not, not bothering you guys. Okay. So, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 8. Verse number 5. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Who is this that cometh up out of the wilderness? The same question, but the focus is on another individual, and it's not a him, it's a her. And she is leaning on her beloved. If you were a part of the crowd watching this group coming out of the wilderness, and it was a group because the king was surrounded by 60 men, expert in war with their swords on their side. So this was quite a procession. If you're focused on the woman only, it's probably a question of contempt. 
who is this? The daughters of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem looking out and seeing their king approach the city see beside him someone who they likely don't appreciate and don't value and wonder why is the king with her? She says in chapter 1 and verse number 6, Look not upon me because I'm black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. So she's a bit embarrassed. She's a bit shy about how she appears and what she looks like. And so here's the king, and beside him, leaning upon him, is this woman, and some would look at her and ask with contempt, who is this? But if you happen to be one of the spectators and you weren't looking just at her, but you were looking at the, the uh, king with her, your question would be a question of curiosity. Who is this? We know who he is, but who is this? And why is she with him? I want to know. This, this, this captures my attention. I, I need to understand why is the king with this woman and why is she leaning upon him as they approach? So it could be a question of contempt. It could be a question of curiosity. But seeing him with her also might cause someone to ask the same question out of credulity, which means that it's incredulous. Who is this that cometh up out of the wilderness? Man, this is incredible. The king has, has come home and he's come home with someone we've never met before, we've never seen before. So before I go further with the two characters in our story, can I focus for a moment on the wilderness? I remember a song when I was growing up as a child and it went something like this, at least the chorus did, this world has been a wilderness and I'm ready for deliverance. I've never been this homesick before. It, the song suggested that to the believer, to the one who has a connection with heaven, whose citizenship is in heaven, who lives in the world, the world is like a wilderness. We often sing the song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And when we read the pages of Scripture, we find a lot of people in the wilderness. We find Hagar in the wilderness. And Hagar is there because she's been cast out. She's alone. She's unwanted. She's unloved. The wilderness is a place of loneliness and a place of desolation often and a place of hardship. And so we find Hagar there. We find Joseph there in a pit in the wilderness. We find Elijah a day's journey in the wilderness feeling alone, having self-pity, and, uh, and saying, I want to die, and falling asleep beneath the juniper tree. We find Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness because they wouldn't trust God and by faith enter into the promised land. We find David in the wilderness as Saul, the king, sought to find him and take his life. So he had to hide out in the wilderness, in the strongholds in the wilderness. So the picture is, to me, of the believer, you and I, once in the world, in the wilderness, and we are coming up out of the wilderness with the king. 
Now, in the reading of the Song of Solomon and in the study of others' comments on it, here's what I've put together. I have put together a picture of King Solomon leaving without notice, leaving somewhat secretly and quietly, leaving the palace and going out into the wilderness, going out the countryside and spending time in the vineyards and in the fields and enjoying the fruits and the gardens and so forth. He may have gone there to look for a bride, but he's there and he meets this Shulamite girl and they fall in love with each other. And when you read the book, the whole book is a contest of each one trying to outdo each other and expressing their love for each other. But they fall in love. And as I read the story, I see this picture in my mind, and I could be wrong, but I see these two enjoying one another's company, and their love is deepening. And, but here's what I know. She doesn't know who he is. She sees him as a shepherd. She sees him as a as a. As a just another person like unto her. And she meets him out there in the common past and he, she can identify with him and even though she has no idea who he is, she doesn't know that he's the king. There comes a time when he has to leave and go back home, so he leaves and goes back home. But he promises that he will come again and take her to himself. And one day he does that. He, he prepares a chariot and the description of it we read in chapter 3, it's beautiful, it's, it's ornate, it's costly, it's expensive. And he gathers these 60 mighty men, expert in war, with their swords, and says, let's go. And the city watches them depart and wonder, where are they going? And I see the procession going through the wilderness and stopping outside the house of the Shulamite. And the the family of the Shulamite wondering what's going on and why is the king coming here? And, and, uh, and uh, I can see somewhat in my mind's eye the Shulamite girl being shy and, and, uh, and kind of the way she describes her family is treating her maybe back in a room and not out front and maybe peeking out the curtains. And she watches as the king dismounts and the king begins to approach the house. And she recognizes the king as the shepherd boy whom she had fallen in love with and he's come to take her home. Can you imagine her joy? And so she joins the king. I can see the king asking for her hand in marriage, the father granting it, the king taking her and he's headed back home to the palace. Now, here's what I want you to see. The question is, who is this that cometh up out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved. I'm suggesting to you that Solomon pictures to us tonight the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the King of Kings and who sat upon the throne of glory and who left that throne and came to this earth and took a body in fashion as a man and he came to live among us and dwell among us and to, that he might redeem us and take us to himself as his bride. And so, how do we relate to him before we get to the palace? Our king, our shepherd, who loved us and laid down his life for us, has promised to come back and get us. We are his bride. Well, what do we do in this world while we are waiting to get to the palace, while we're waiting for the king to return? 
Because Solomon's just a man and the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a man and he is God and everywhere present, we can see the picture. It breaks down when we think about uh, Solomon uh, being present with her and at the, pal- uh, at the palace at the same time. But I want you to get this picture fixed in your mind. She is leaning on her beloved. What does leaning sig- signify? In the last year, I've had two knees replaced. And during the course of recovering from the surgery, I got a walker and went from a walker to a cane and sometimes used both of them alternately. You know what I was doing? I was leaning on them. You know why I'm leaning on them? Because I'm recognizing that I need help. It is a a confession of my weakness. It is a declaration of my need for support and my need for for strength. When you lean upon something, it, it means that you are close to it and you need the support and you need the comfort. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you leaning upon the Lord Jesus? The individual Christian who is, by the way, the church. The church is not this building. You understand that. The church is this assembly. But this assembly is made up of individuals who are born again and have a relationship with Christ Are you leaning on your beloved? It's a declaration of independence. It's an admission of weakness. But it's also a declaration of confidence and trust. You don't lean upon something that's not stable. You don't lean upon something that's not going to support you and not going to strengthen you. So she's leaning on her beloved. The songwriter said it this way. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Can you picture in your mind this Shulamite girl leaning upon her beloved, the king of Israel? Can you imagine the emotions of her heart and the way she feels? What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. She's leaning on him. Because she's loved by him. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? She's beloved by him and he's beloved by her. The more she leans, the more she learns. Is it not true that when you lean upon something or upon someone, when you become dependent upon someone or something and you establish a close relationship, an intimate relationship, that you learn more about that individual, more about that thing? I'm I'm imagining as they converse together, he's telling her about the place where he comes from, telling her about his father, telling her about his father's house, telling what it's like in the palace. And, and she is learning about him. She's already in love with him. And that love causes her now to join him and lean upon him on the journey. The more she leans, the more she learns. And the more she learns, the more she loves. Can I suggest to you that you cannot learn of the Lord Jesus Christ without falling deeper in love with him? If you're learning him as he's revealed in the pages of scripture, your love will always be deepening. So the more she leans, the more she learns. The more she learns, the more she loves. And the more she loves, the more she leans. And the more she leans, the more she learns. And the more she learns, the more she loves. 
So that's the picture. She's leaning on him. Can I remind you that you and I are created by God? And when a man creates something, a machine of some kind, because he, he wants to accomplish a purpose, he, he decides how that machine will operate. What does it take to fuel that machine? Is it going to be diesel? Is it going to be gas? Is it going to be electricity? Is it going to be batteries? And so the machine is designed to run in a certain fashion. And the only way it will operate at its optimum is if you operate it according to, to the way it was made to do. So the human machine, my life and your life, is made by God to run on the fuel of God himself. Fellowship with our creator. We are meant to feed upon him. And the only thing that will ever bring us true joy, true peace, true contentment is fellowship with him. So she's leaning upon him and her love is increasing. As the king... He is the center of everybody's attention. All the soldiers, all of the spectators, herself as the king. But as her groom, he is now the center of her affection. Is the Lord Jesus the center of your affection? Is he the central affection of your life? As long as she is in the company of the king, she's safe. What does she need to fear? Does she need to fear the weather, the sandstorms, or whatever comes up in the wilderness? No, because she's with the king. And the king has his soldiers, his, his uh, entourage. And so she's safe as long as she's leaning upon the king. How about wild beasts? Does she need to fear the wild beasts? I would suggest no, there are wild beasts in the wilderness, but she's with the king. And the king has surrounded by soldiers. I'm reminded that the scripture teaches me that God has given his angels charge over us. That the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. I'm reminded of Elisha's servant who had his eyes open and saw the armies of God encircling the enemy as they encircled the city that he was in, the city of Dothan. She doesn't need to fear the weather. She doesn't need to fear the wild beast. How about wicked men? The wilderness is full of wayfaring men, robbers and thieves that lie in wait to ambush you. She doesn't need to fear them as long as she's in the presence of the king, surrounded by his mighty men. So what is the danger that she faces? What is the enemy, the greatest enemy of the Shulamite, who pictures the Christian or who pictures the local church. What's the greatest enemy? Her own heart. Her own heart. So perhaps the company stops and uh, they're having lunch or they're uh, getting ready to set up for the night or whatever and she notices a beautiful flower, uh, a flowering plant, which are rare in the wilderness, but she sees it and so she wanders off to look at it and to enjoy it and then she sees another and another and if she's not careful, she'll be distracted by something beautiful and something alluring and before long, she's out of the sight of or out of the presence of the king and now she's in danger. Or perhaps while she is in the entourage and even leaning upon the king, she notices one of the soldiers and he's a strapping young man 
and his rippling muscles and, and ruggedly handsome. And she begins to think about him in comparison to the king and her affections begin to turn. And now she doesn't lean as heavily on the king. Now she doesn't sit as close to the king. She's been glancing at him and he's caught the glances and now he's glancing back and her heart is being stolen away by someone else. I suggest to you that the danger, the greatest danger of a local church is when we lose our center of affection. When we, when we stop understanding that it's all about the Lord Jesus, that it's all about the one who came to redeem us, when we allow our hearts to wander from him, the very first letter that Jesus writes uh, to the churches in the book of Revelation is to Ephesus, and he says to them, you've lost your first love. And I think there's more involved than just the affection for him, but, but that's what happens to us. As long as we're leaning on our beloved, we are safe. We are secure. The songwriter said it this way, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Would you go with me now for a moment as I get ready to close to chapter number seven, chapter seven. And I wish I had time to develop this, and I don't, but I'm going to read to you verses 10 to 13. And I want to try for a moment to show you the heart of the Shulamite who has fallen in love with the Savior. In verse number 10, we read these words. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. I call this confession. And if you read verses 1 to 9, verses 1 to 9 are the words being spoken to her by her beloved. And in answer to what she's hearing from him, she now confesses, she now rejoices in the relationship and said, my beloved is mine and, and I am his and his desire is toward me. He reaches out toward me. He stretches out to me. The language is all through the song. Look at chapter 2. And verse number eight, the voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Look at verse 10, my beloved spake. So it's the voice of my beloved, the speaking of my beloved, and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And on and on it goes. Go back to verse number uh, three. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Stay with me, stay with me with flagons, comfort me with apples for I am sick of love. She has come to realize through being in the presence of him and listening to his words, his words have inflamed her heart. Listen, beloved, the joy of the Lord is your strength and that which will make this church vibrant and keep it vibrant and keep it safe from harm is listening to, abiding in the words of the master, the one who loves you. Hear what he says about you. Stay in the book and let him reveal his heart towards you. There's confession, then there's consecration in verse number 11. She said, come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. I'm not going to develop this, but in the New Testament, Jesus says the field is the world. Think about that. You know what happens when you fall in love with Jesus? You want to go where he wants to go, and his heart is for the world. 
And so you say, come, my beloved, let us go into the field. This is a worldwide outreach. This is missionary endeavor. This is going out into the harvest where, where the Lord says the field is white already in the harvest. Then she says in verse 11, let us lodge in the villages. A village is a community. It's a brotherhood. It's a place where you find nourishment and fellowship and enjoyment. I look at this as the local church. You, she wants to be with him in the company of others. She wants to share his love with others. And so I see the Christian in, in fellowship with the Lord, wanting to be involved in the mission field. That's his love and also being in communion with the saints. And then number three, notice in verse number 12, let us get up early to the vineyards. Get up early to the vineyards. I see this as devotion. This is personal devotion. This is getting up before the day really gets going. Getting up before it gets busy. Her beloved is a king. There's a lot on his plate. So she says, let's, let's get up before everybody else and let's spend some time together. Let's go down to the vineyard. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the vine. We are the branches and we need to abide in him in order to bring forth fruit. And she says, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranate is bud forth. And then notice this statement, there I will give thee my loves, plural, my loves in the field, in the village, and in the garden. The songwriter said, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And then I see a picture of contentment. So I see confession, consecration, and contentment. Verse number 13, the mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I've laid up for thee, O my beloved. All right, now, I want to close by getting you to think about this. If this is true, and this is a picture of an individual believer, myself, having been in the wilderness, but the king of kings came and, and uh, laid aside his robes and came and met me and talk to me of his love and profess his love for me and ask me to be his bride, ask me to join him and to become one with him. And I now am leaning upon the beloved. I am a part of him. He's the groom, I'm the bride. As we read in Ephesians chapter five, are you with me? But when I look across the room at New Testament Baptist Church, on this side of the room, and I see that man, and over here I see that woman, I understand that all of them are looking at the same picture. And in order for the church to be what it needs to be, we need to love the church as Christ loved the church. I'm not the only one who's the object of affection. By the way, how many wives did Solomon have? A thousand. Some people have wondered at that, and, and, and certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, God's plan. God allowed it. And I wonder if God didn't allow it because I'm not the only one joined to Christ. All the members of my church are joined to Christ. 
And all the members of my church were the objects of his affection. And when he left the glories of heaven, he came into this world to find them. And he loves them. And he wants them to lean upon him. And so when I come to church, I need to see the church through the eyes of Scripture as the bride of Christ. And I need to treat the church accordingly as the bride of my beloved. I'm not only the only object of his affection, and he loves equally another. And if I would love him and not offend him and not, and not wound his heart or cause him sorrow, I need to love the other. You know, sometimes we look at people who come down the aisle, get saved and added to the church, and we might say it this way, who is this? I'll tell you who it is. It's his beloved. It's his beloved. Oh, and when that gets a hold of our heart and we look at the church as his bride, as the people in whom he delights and the people who have a personal and special relationship to him for whom he came to die, it changes our view of the church. It's not something we do because we have to. It's something we do because we love to, because we want to get together and talk about him and we delight in him. And, and the problem is we sometimes begin to, 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 to lose the thought and we think he loves us more than he loves someone else. And so we don't love them as much as he did. And didn't Jesus say that the world would know who we are by how we love one another? Didn't he say to us, I give you a commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So if I'm the Shulamite, if I'm the one in the wilderness to whom he came to redeem and whom he took to himself and he loves me in that way, I'm commanded to love others in the same way and he says the only way the world will know who he is and who we are is if we love one another so the world is looking at us and saying who is this what a wonderful thing if they would say it with credulity in their voice and say who is this they look at the church and see a people who love each other a people who love to be together, who though they're different and they have all kinds of differences, are united by a passionate love for the Savior. And because of their appreciation personally of his love for them, they appreciate the fact that the neighbor loves him that way and this one loves him that way. And they just join together. And the world looks at that and says, this is strange. Who is this? They say that about our bridegroom, about Jesus. Who is this? that can produce that kind of unity, that can produce that kind of joy, peace, and contentment. And they look at us and say, who is this? Church, look at this assembly as the bride of the Lord Jesus. Every local church, every assembly of believers, full of people redeemed by His grace, and loved by him and he loves me no more than he loves anyone else and he loves no one else any more than he loves me his love for me is pure and constant and I can rejoice in that love and I will never know joy outside of that sweet fellowship of leaning on the beloved I'll never know peace and contentment without leaning on the beloved I was not made to enjoy peace or joy or happiness or hope in any other way than to find it in my creator and he left the glories of heaven and came directly here to meet me so that I could experience that and could become one with him 
I trust that you will look at the church a little bit differently. That every time you walk in the doors and you look at somebody, you won't say, who is this? You'll say, who is this? And you will think about your king and the marvel of the one who loves you, that he loves them as much. And you will love them in return because they're the bride of the king as you are. May the Lord help us to see the church as we ought to. Who is this? that cometh up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. Are you leaning on the beloved as you walk through this wilderness? Are you enjoying the fellowship? As you lean, you learn, as you learn, you love, and it just keeps going. Father in heaven, I pray you'll bless the thought of the message to the hearts of the hearers. I pray that you will do in every individual what needs to be done. You know where we stand in relationship to the church. You know where we stand in relationship to you. You know where we stand in relationship to loving our brother. And I pray that you would stir the hearts of your people in whatever way would please you uh, to obey, to commit uh, themselves uh, afresh and anew to the blessedness of a local church and the relationship that it enjoys with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords.